I moved to a different city to attend seminary. And there was a church in the city that I was familiar with for a long time. I had heard sermons from the pastor of this church. I'd even read books from the pastor of this church. And so I had some anticipation as I walked into the church building the first Sunday and as I slowly got settled into this church community. And it did not take me long to realize that this church was exceedingly and incredibly normal. And more than normal, I began to feel that there were things that rubbed against my preferences. It was a huge church, so I sort of felt invisible a lot of the time. It took a long time to get into what felt like deep community. The first time I went to a small group when we were praying at the end, someone prayed for me as Kevin, even though my name is Scott. It's like, who's Kevin? I'm Kevin, okay. <laughs> and a few weeks in, I realized slowly that I had carried into this experience, into this new church, an idea of a dream church that was now slowly dying. And if you're anything like me, you've realized that it doesn't take long to be invested in Christian community to start feeling conflicted about Christian community. And that there are struggles there that you wish weren't there. It can be small, just annoyance level things like somebody sitting or standing behind you who sings loudly out of tune. They can be bigger than that, like somebody in your small group who keeps giving you counsel, counsel that is unwelcome and insensitive. Or it can be just huge. And there's some people here who have had huge things happen to them in churches, like somebody slandering you whom you loved and trusted. And this passage in Ephesians 4 is all about moments like these. It's about how we, as the church, as the people of God, handle annoyance and frustration and conflict and offense and insensitivity and insults. It's about having the right expectations when we walk into a church so that we have the right dream of what church should be like. And we're going to see that interpersonal friction, both small and large, is normal in the community of God's people, not only by today's standards, but by New Testament standards. And more than that, we're going to see that it's not only normal, but it is the very context where God invites us to make much of Christ and to know him more deeply. So Ephesians 4, 1 to 3 is going to be where we are tonight, and we're going to approach this in three steps. First, we're going to look at the context real briefly, and then we'll consider the one command that Paul gives in this section, and then we'll spend most of our time looking at the path that he lays out for us to walk on this command or to fulfill the command. So the context, and then the command, and then the path for obeying it. So first, the context. If you are familiar with the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, then you might know you can split it pretty evenly right down the middle. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul is taking us on a tour of 
redemption. He tells about how God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world and how Jesus has forgiven us of our trespasses and sins by his death and resurrection and how God has now filled his church with the Spirit so that we are the very dwelling place of God. And then, in chapters 4 to 6, he pivots to talk about not what God has done, not all that God has done, but now how we live by the Spirit in light of all that God has done. And so he gets really nitty-gritty, pushing all that God has done into all corners of life, into our jobs and neighborhoods and marriages and families and friendships and work and more. So our passage falls at the very beginning of this second section, chapters 4 to 6. It's the hinge passage in the book of Ephesians where Paul turns from celebrating all that God has done for us in Christ to talking about how we respond in all of life. So that's the context briefly. Now the command. Look with me again back at verse 1. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Therefore, Paul says, in light of our Father's love for us, in light of Jesus' death for us, and in light of the Spirit's residence within us, how do we as the church respond? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We don't talk like that very often. I don't think I can remember a single time I turned to someone and said, Brother, walk worthy of God. We like to talk about how Jesus is worthy, not about how we are worthy. And rightly so, if we understand worthiness right. But several times in the scriptures, God calls us to this, to live in a manner that is worthy of God or worthy of the calling. So what does that mean? To walk in a manner worthy of God clearly does not mean we somehow become worthy of being called by God, of receiving this calling that Paul talks about. It's not like Paul is saying that God is up in heaven saying, yeah, I will call you mine once you show yourself worthy of being mine. That's how people love, but that is not how God loves. People often say, whether in explicit words, usually not, but in attitude, I will call you mine, I will love you when you are worthy of my love. God does the opposite and says, I will love you, I will call you when you are utterly unworthy of my love, and I myself will make you worthy. To paraphrase the reformer theologian Martin Luther, God's love does not look for worthiness, but God's love creates worthiness in Christ. And you can see that in the very structure of this command where Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Notice the past tense. At this point in the letter, the audience, we, have already been called by God. It's happened. It happened in chapters 1 to 3. You can see that especially in verse 18 of chapter 1, where Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which God has called you. And then he spends the rest of chapter 1 and then 2 and 3 celebrating the calling and the hope that we have because of the calling, which happened before we did anything. And so the calling has already happened. 
And it did not happen when we were worthy of him, but when we were dead. When we were lost, when we were, Paul says, without God and without hope. Then, at that time, God looked at you, Christian, and said, mine. You are mine. He called you into life. He called you into Christ. And he called you into a hope that now shapes all of your life. So what does it mean to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called? It does not mean live in a manner that earns being called. It instead means live in a way that fits with the glory of God's calling. Live in a way so that other people might look at you and say, this person has clearly been shown great mercy by God. Live in a way so that other people see you and they know something of the calling of God by the way you talk and by the way that you act, by the way that you move through conflict and every other part of life. Let it all say something about the God who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So that is the command. And in the next three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is going to get specific. And the first place he turns is not to personal holiness. It's not to our life at work or at home. But it's to our relationships in the church. And so, with that, let's look at the path that Paul leads us on to obey this command. Look with me again at verses 2 to 3. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're going to look at each of these five qualities here in just a moment. But before we do, let me offer an observation on them all to set the stage and help us to hear them rightly. The observation is this. The only way, church that we can walk in a manner that is worthy of God is by walking in messy community. The only way we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling is by walking in messy community. Because Paul, right after talking about walking in a manner worthy, turns to community. And not to community at its best, but to community that requires humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with and striving to maintain unity, which means that this community has problems. Just like ours, just like every one. And that is the only way we can walk worthy of him. Do you ever feel like you could be so much holier if you just didn't have to be around people? I feel that way. Oh, how holy I could be if I were by myself. Sometimes I'll have a quiet time, time in scripture and prayer that just feels so good. I will rise up into my day feeling patient, feeling loving, feeling ready to follow Jesus. And then two hours later, I find myself feeling irritable, feeling impatient, feeling like I've forgotten God for the last two hours. What happened? People happened. And I don't think that means the morning was fake. It just means that true holiness has to move out of the prayer closet and into community. Because the only way we can be truly humble in this world is if somebody is opposing our preferences. 
The only way we can be truly patient is if something's provoking us. That's not, you can't have it without the problems. And so the only way, church, we can walk worthily of God is to walk in messy community. So with that in mind, let's consider these five qualities one by one. They all describe our life together in community. And to understand them, we're going to look at some of the places that Paul talks about them in his other letters. And we're going to move through them somewhat quickly so that we can then look back at all of them together at the end. So first, we walk in a manner worthy of God's calling when we walk with all humility. Humility is a familiar word, but what's it mean? The word carries the idea of lowliness. That you are not thinking highly of yourself, but that we are not even, as C.S. Lewis famously put it, not even thinking of ourselves that much because we're so prone, so given to thinking about other people and how we can serve, how we can help. We're not up here looking down, oh, critical about that, that didn't, that didn't go well, that person didn't do that right. No, we're down here. We're low. We gladly go low in order to lift other people up. Here's what Paul says about humility in Philippians 2.3. You know this verse, many of you. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So humility, like all these qualities, has an interpersonal dimension. I'm going to not puff myself up in relationship to you, but I'm going to go low in order that you might go up. So when humble people walk into a room filled with others, They are on the lookout, not first for people who can love and serve them, but for people they can love and serve. When humble people get into a conflict, they are more interested in understanding the other person than in defending themselves. When humble people feel offended, they are so slow to assume motives of the other person and quick to cover it over with love. Humble people can serve without being noticed. They can give up their rights without complaining. And they are far more prone to encourage than to criticize. They go low in order to lift others up. And because our Lord Jesus has humbled himself to death, he can teach us to be humble. Second, we walk in a manner worthy of God's calling when we walk with gentleness. Gentleness is a twin sister to humility in a lot of ways. They're related, but it particularly has to do with how we use our strength or our power. A lot of people, when they hear the word gentle, think weak, gentleness, weakness. But biblically, it is the opposite. Gentleness is not weakness, but it is the loving and godly exercise of strength. So here, for example, the way Paul talks in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. If you catch another person in their sin, or if they are coming to you to confess their sin, all of a sudden you're in a position of tremendous power. It's like you are standing over someone who just fell onto the ground. And in that moment, you can do one of two things. You can kick them, or you can give them a hand and pull them up. Gentleness gives a hand. 
And that means that gentle people are approachable people. Jesus told us this. Do you remember Matthew 11? He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. Come to me because I'm gentle. If you are weak and heavy laden and feeling guilty over your sin, you do not want to go to a hard person, someone who's going to lay an extra burden on your back. You want to go to a gentle person who's going to get underneath the burden with you. So, because Christ is gentle toward us, that is his heart, we too can be gentle toward one another. Third, we walk in a manner worthy of God's calling when we walk with patience. Biblical patience is more than the ability to sit calmly in traffic or to wait in a grocery line, grocery line without looking at your phone, though that is hard enough. Biblical patience has to do with how you receive offenses. The word patient, you could translate it more literally as long-tempered. It's the same word that God uses when he tells Moses his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, slow to anger, patient. And Paul tells us that Jesus has perfect patience for sinners. And so patience is in the context of sin, God is merciful and gracious. That means he's, he's patient. He's slow to anger. When we sin against him, he doesn't quickly get, to ang- get angry. He doesn't say, ah, again. But instead, he meets our sins with mercy. He draws us to repentance with patience. And patient people are like that. Patient people can take an offense in the face and then look over it. They can be wounded by somebody without going and finding clever and subtle ways to talk about them behind their back, without venting about it to a friend. They can receive an injury, a hurt, and move toward the person who did it, not to lash back out, but with humility, with gentleness, with patience. And Jesus is right now patient with us. And that means we can be patient with each other. We can grow in it. Fourth, we walk in a manner that is worthy of God's calling when we bear with one another in love. Just like humility and gentleness are similar in some ways, patience and forbearance, bearing with, are similar. When we put up, when we bear with someone, we put up with them. You put up with something burdensome, you endure something hard. And bearing with another person or a situation is not the same thing as forgiving. You can see the difference or you can see the distinction in another passage in Colossians where Paul writes this. He says, bear with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. So there's a reality called bearing with and there's a reality called forgiving. In a community like this or any church, There are going to be all sorts of things that just feel hard, but that you cannot forgive because they're not sin, and you cannot change even if you tried. 
So, for example, when you are close in a DNA or an MC with someone's personality that you just find challenging, or a communication style that is not the way you do it, or when we disagree with one another over matters that are not of forced importance, like ministry philosophy or politics in this season. Bearing with one another reminds us that when things get hard in a community but that aren't sinful, it doesn't mean something's wrong. It just means that God is pushing us in to bear with one another as he bears with us. And Paul tells us to do it in love. So in other words, don't just tolerate your brother or sister. Don't just smile nicely on the outside while you roll your eyes on the inside. Instead, love them perhaps like you would love a biological brother or sister that you are totally different from. A lot of us have that. I have that. Couldn't be more different from a brother or sister. How does that happen? But over time, you learn to bear with those things that you find strange. And if God is merciful to us in this, we learn not only to bear with it, not only to deal with it, cheerfully, but to appreciate it. Like, that is not the way I do it. That's not the way I'd say it. But that person is gifted by God in ways that I'm not, and I love it. And so because Christ bears with us, we can in turn bear with one another when we run up against things that just feel hard. And finally, we walk in a manner that is worthy of God's calling when we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Our job, church, is not to create unity with each other. That has been done by Jesus at his cross. His blood unites us to each other. His Spirit filling all of us brings us together into the same family. So our job is not to create unity. Praise God for that but instead to maintain it by the power of the Spirit. We have the Spirit for this task, church. It is God's passion that we would be a unified body, but we have to strive to maintain it. And when I was reading this verse some time ago, I was struck by that word eager. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And it struck me because in the past, when I thought about the kind of person who divides a church or destroys the unity in a church, I thought about divisive people. I thought about people who agitate and who complain and who always find fault with the way that things are done and who get people over to their side and then start a civil war in the church. But then I realized with this verse that you don't have to be divisive in order to undermine the unity of a church. You just have to not be eager to maintain it. So it hit home to me because if you sin against me, if you offend me, usually my temptation is not to blow up at you. It's not to cut the relationship off. It's not to go and talk behind your back. But instead, it's just to stop trying so hard with you. To become content with a relationship that is cold and and formal rather than familial and warm. So Paul, in a few verses, is going to talk about the church being a body, a body with members, and the first kind of destroyer, you know, divisive people. That's like a hand that just starts punching other parts of the body. 
but you can also destroy the unity of a body if you just are a hand that sits there. In either way, we are not being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So hear other translations of this word, be eager. Do your best, strive, make every effort, be diligent. That is challenging. When we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, we're not content when tensions are unresolved. And just to let it, you know, exist over there while we just keep a safe distance from something that happened. We move toward one another even when the conflict feels so complex and we don't know how it's going to be worked out, trusting that God is able to give the breakthrough. He is the God of unity. He's given us his spirit for the task. And so we keep pressing. And Christ himself, as I mentioned, has done the main work. And so because he has united us to himself by the spirit, we can strive to be unified. And so now that we've considered all five of those qualities, let's apply this passage just a little bit more to ourselves by asking this question. Why is this what it looks like to walk worthily of the calling to which we've been called? If God had wanted to, he could have glorified himself in us by removing conflict, by removing all annoyances and frustrations and sin. That's not the way he's chosen to do it. Not yet. That day will come, but it's not yet. So why this way? Why is this the way that we walk worthily of him? And here's one reason why. It's because community struggles like this, they display more of Christ to us and to our world. So consider first how these kinds of struggles, they invite us to become more like Christ. This passage is a portrait of Jesus. He is the one who humbled himself to the point of death. He is the one who called himself gentle and lowly. He's the one who has perfect patience towards sinners. He's the one who bears with us. He's the one who bought our unity with his blood. And so, have you ever considered that when you pray for God to make you more holy, more Christ-like, that he would answer by sending an offense? Because how are we going to be humble like him unless somebody is opposing us? How are we going to be patient like him unless something is provoking? How are we going to show that we care about unity just as much as he did unless there are threats to our unity. There is no other way to become like Jesus in this world than to have the same kinds of challenges, opposition that Jesus had. And so this is the way, the indispensable way that God is making us more like Jesus. All of a sudden, things that were once only a disappointment become an expected part of our life together. Do you know how freeing that is? When, when you feel hurt by someone and all the times in the past, you've been tempted to uh, back away, run away from the community, think you're in the wrong place, and all of a sudden now, you take a deep breath and you say, well, this is the way it's gotta be. God's gonna make me more like Jesus. This is the way he's doing it. 
And he'll give me the grace for this. Community struggles not only make us more like Christ, they invite us to glorify Christ. The day is coming when we will glorify him by never getting on each other's nerves again, by never having conflict with one another again, by only having a community that feels awesome all the time. But for now, conflict doesn't mean failure. Nor do disappointments or frustrations or annoyances. Doesn't mean it. Doesn't mean we've failed. Doesn't mean we've lost. Because the glory of Christian community in this world is not that there is no trouble, but that we handle trouble with humility and grace. The glory is not that other people no longer annoy us or they no longer seem odd, but that we bear with one another gladly, warm-heartedly, out of love because Christ is born with us and because really we know that other people are bearing with us too. The glory of Christian community is not that other people no longer provoke us, but that we see provocation as an opportunity, church, to glorify Christ to one another and to the world that is watching. And finally, these kinds of struggles not only make us more like Christ, not only put him on display, but they invite us to commune with him more deeply than we have before. Look with me if you still have it open. Back to the very beginning of our passage, verse 1. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you. And the word, therefore, as always, reminds us that what we're reading here relies on what came before. And what came before is chapters 1 to 3, where Paul talks about the glory of the calling to which we have been called. And that means that we cannot live in Ephesians 4, unless we are living in Ephesians 1 to 3. Unless we are living in the daily reality that when we were running away from God, when we were lost, when we were happy in our sin, he reached in, not because we deserved it better than anybody else, but because of the great love with which he has loved us, and he raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. If we are not there in a vibrant way, in a real way, in a living way, in a consistent basis, then this is just going to be too hard. Can't do it. It will feel, the offenses that we receive will feel far bigger than the grace that we've been given. And so it will feel like just too hard of a path. And if that is true of us right now, if it feels like it is increasingly difficult to walk humbly, to deal gently with others, to bear with others patiently, then the remedy, the remedy is not to strong arm yourself into these qualities, but rather to bathe our hearts again in the grace that is ours in Jesus, which is not a work of a moment, obviously. It is a lifestyle. It is a pattern of walking with him, of communing with him morning by morning. But I do want to share, just as a point of immediate practical application, something that has been life-giving for me and helpful for me lately. When I have been in situations like this where I just feel pricked, where I feel, uh, that didn't, that wasn't good, what someone just said, what someone just did, and I'm about to just rehearse it in my head or or start to feel criticism toward this person, in that moment, it has been so good for me to, to go back to Ephesians 1 and start at verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ to the praise of the glory of his grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And you could go on. But in that, that's just, it's just a recalibrating passage. And all of a sudden, by God's help and with his grace, God becomes bigger. Jesus becomes bigger than the offense that just came. And so, if that glory and others is bigger and brighter in our hearts than what anyone else can do to us, then, and only then, is this path going to feel like home. So return with me to the beginning. What do you do when it feels like your dream church dies? When the relationships feel harder than you expected, when the community feels less deep than you hoped for, when somebody wounds you, do you find yourself pulling away? Do you find yourself justifying an increasing hardness toward a brother or a sister in your heart? Or do you feel deep down that this is an opportunity to be shaped into the image of the Lord whom you love and to commune with him more closely than you ever have. Because if our dream community becomes more significant, bigger to us than Christ, becoming like him, knowing him more deeply, then community is going to fail no matter how good it is. But if Christ is our aim, knowing him, making much of him, enjoying him, knowing him, then our community is going to give us more of him no matter what happens, even the parts that disappoint us. So let's pray. Our Father, we are debtors to grace. We need your grace in order to walk out this path that you have laid before us. It is beautiful, and we praise you for giving us this blueprint of life together, but we can't do it on our own. And so we call out now for the grace that it comes only through Christ. Father, would you make our church more like this? Would you make us more humble toward one another, more gentle with each other, more patient with each other? more eager to bear each other's burdens and bear with one another and more resolute against anything that would destroy our unity? Do you do it for Jesus' sake? We ask in his name, amen.